hand in hand. My name is Dave Keating. I'm going to be guiding us through tonight's talk and welcome to all of you here in the room with us and also to those of you joining online. Now, today we're going to be talking about methane's role in climate change, and in particular, the proposal put forward by the European Commission one year ago for the first EU-wide legislation to cut methane emissions. Since the proposal has come out, the file has stalled a bit in the European Parliament, and national governments haven't shown that much interest in the Council, with countries finding themselves preoccupied with all of the energy implications that we're dealing with right now. However, finally, it does look like we should be getting some preliminary approaches to this file from both institutions pretty soon. So today, we're going to talk about the regulation and the measures needed to reduce domestic and international methane emissions. We'll also talk about what's possible in the new energy context that we find ourselves in, given the Ukraine war and the Commission's Repower EU plan in response. Now, this is going to be an interactive conversation, and you guys will also be able to participate. If you're here in the audience, you'll see you'll have a little slip of paper with a QR code on there. You can scan that to get onto Slido. That's how you're going to be able to ask your questions to the panelists today. If you're watching online, you can also see that field for asking Slido questions. During the panel discussions later on, I'll be keeping tabs on your questions, and I'll put them to the panelists. So, Let's get started with some welcome remarks from Jonathan Banks, Global Director for Methane Pollution Prevention at the Clean Air Task Force. Jonathan? Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm uh, Jonathan Banks. I'm the Global Director for the Methane Program at the Clean Air Task Force. Um, CATF's an international organization working to safeguard against the worst impacts of climate change and methane mitigation is one of our oldest and largest programs uh, that we have seeking to catalyze deep global reductions in methane emissions to help stave off uh, the risk of um, irreversible climate change. Uh, tonight, thanks to our hosts at Euractiv, we will have a robust conversation about the current state of the EU methane regulation. Methane is, of course, 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period and is responsible right now for about a half a degree of warming that we're feeling out of the roughly 1.2 degrees that the planet has warmed to date. Because of its potency and its short lifespan compared to carbon dioxide, cutting methane pollution is the fastest way to slow the escalating rate of global warming. Scientists agree that we will not be able to limit global warming to one and a half degrees or two degrees or honestly any target if we don't drastically cut anthropogenic methane emissions. Yet according to the UN, we are not reducing methane emissions, we're actually increasing them and we're increasing at an alarming rate. Last year witnessed the highest ever recorded rise in methane emissions concentration in our atmosphere. In this decade, we will need to make significant progress cutting methane emissions across all three major methane emitting sectors, energy, agriculture, and waste. But some of the biggest opportunities are in the energy sp sector, specifically the oil and gas sector, which will be the focus of our conversation tonight. The International Energy Agency estimates we can eliminate nearly 75% of the methane emissions in the oil and gas sector globally using tools and technologies that we have today. This is based on the average price, and these, these measures are all um, very economic, um, and many of them are profitable. 
Um, this is, of course, based on the average price of gas from 2017 to 2021, which is merely a fraction of what we're seeing today. At today's prices, nearly everything that's technically feasible to cut can be done at a profit. Europe is, of course, facing an energy crisis and is desperately searching for new energy imports. Methane pollution in the energy sector is not just a climate problem, it's also a huge waste of energy that can be harnessed to help solve the current crisis. In Repower EU, the Commission announced a program called You Collect, We Buy that could be harnessed to reduce the 210 BCM of gas that is wasted globally through flaring, venting, and fugitive emissions. And policymakers around the world are starting to respond to this. Methane took center stage at COP26, where the EU and the US jointly launched the Global Methane Pledge, an international call to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030, with 100 countries joining at COP26. Just recently, at COP27 in Egypt, the momentum on methane action increased substantially, with over 150 countries now supporting the pledge and nations responding with additional announcements to regulate methane emissions across different sectors. Now, 95% of NDCs include methane in their greenhouse gas target, or they will by their next update. More than 50 countries have national methane action plans or are working to create one. The EU joined other nations in a joint declaration between energy importers and exporters to work to reduce its methane emissions. And Canada, Nigeria, and the United States announced far-reaching regulations um, or regulatory pathways. These include ambitious new plans like monthly leak detection and repair inspections, LDAR, at all oil and gas facilities, replacing vent-by-design equipment within a few years, and a fee on methane emissions. Also, the International Methane Emissions Observatory, IMEO, which was launched by the EU and UNEP in 2021, announced a new initiative at COP27 called MARS, the Methane Alert and Response System, which is designed to accelerate implementation of the Global Methane Pledge by scaling up global efforts to detect and act on major emission sources, so-called super emitters. At COP27, I had the privilege to be the MC for the Methane Ministerial, where Executive Vice President Timmermans and Special Presidential Envoy John Kerry issued a call to action to all nations. Return to COP28 with all nations covering methane in their NDCs, methane action plans from all countries, and specific methane policies that start to slash methane emissions. The EU methane regulation is the EU's answer to this last part of the call to action. The original proposal builds on the Commission's international leadership to reduce methane, emissions and seeks to address methane emissions from the energy sector in a comprehensive way. There are a lot of good elements in this proposal. MRV measures progressively becoming more granular, regular leak detection and repair, and requirements to address venting and flaring from oil and gas facilities. The regulations also address coal mine methane, uh, but we won't do a whole lot of talking about that tonight. Um, however, it's not enough for the EU to put forth good regulations uh, no matter um, what they look like from the beginning, we need globally leading regulations. We need regulations that recognize the evolution of the regulatory system that has been happening over the last few months. Recently, Canada announced a second round of regulatory actions that's going to be taking 
that will end up being the strongest regulations in the world. They include monthly leak detection and repair, zero-emitting equipment standards, and annual inspections of non-producing wells, and aggressive standards for venting at all facilities. They've also expanded the scope of their regulations to cover the distribution system, which was uncovered by the Canadian regulations previously. For the EU's regulations to be seen as a global example of leadership, it must incorporate these kinds of forward-thinking policies and resist the efforts that are being exerted to weaken them. The EU should include requirements for monthly leak detection and repair, inspections across all facilities, and it should set into law the first comprehensive plan for import standards that takes into consideration the EU's entire methane footprint, where the vast majority of energy emissions take place outside its borders. Now, I'm very pleased to introduce the Executive Vice President of the European Commission, Franz Timmermans, who has, of course, been the champion of the European Green Deal, but he's also been a champion of methane mitigation globally. He has helped lead the efforts around the Global Methane Pledge, uh, along with John Kerry, and your leadership on methane has really created real momentum, and uh, I look forward to your remarks and welcome you up here to the podium. Thank you. Thank you very much and um, good afternoon to all of you. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I could keep my remarks extremely short by saying what he said, uh, but I guess you want to hear it from me as well. Uh, so I'll do my best to deliver a few, few remarks. Um, so if in the IPCC assessment we see that nearly 45% of current uh, net warming is caused uh, by methane, human-driven methane emissions, uh, and that in 2021, the volume of methane in the atmosphere saw its largest annual increase ever recorded, we really need to act. Um, there's also a silver lining to those shocking numbers. Methane is a greenhouse gas that we can do something about, as you've said, and we can do it quickly, and we can do it at a profit. Um, and as a Dutchman, I'm always happy when we can do something at a profit. Um, and it will have a, a positive impact on the, um, on the warming in years and decades. Um, it's also the cheapest and fastest way to slow down global warming in the years ahead. If we're serious about this, we can reduce the accelerating global warming by doing simple, proven things in agriculture, energy, and waste sectors. As you said, the technologies are there. It's not something we need to invent. And if we do these things, we will avoid, in our analysis, 0.2 uh, degrees global warming between 2040 and 2070. So in the EU, we've taken steps to reduce our own methane emissions uh, for almost uh, 30 years already. Over the past three decades, we reduced these emissions from landfilling by almost half and fossil fuels by over 65%. But still, much more needs to be done on all fronts. Reaching carbon neutrality by 2050, and we want to go even further, we want to reach climate neutrality, uh, will mean that all sectors of our economy have to make an effort to cut greenhouse gas emissions. The EU is taking this work very seriously, even while this has been a terrible year for us. Russia's brutal war on our continent has brought a humanitarian, an energy, and an economic crisis. And they were engineered because Putin wants to use energy to divide and weaken us, and he's trying to destroy... Ukraine in such a way that millions of Ukrainians will have to flee the country, and he hopes that that will also exacerbate our problems and weaken us and 
make us uh, go to our knees, which, we'll, which we will never do. Um, and on top of all that, the madness of the situation is that tens of billions of cubic meters of methane are flared and vented into the atmosphere while there are energy crises in the world. Just imagine you could use that methane to solve some of these crises. It's an entirely preventable situation of economic loss coupled with climate destruction. And we've also seen it when the pipelines were destroyed, immediate increase of methane emissions. So the EU's methane regulation is at the heart of our effort to address avoidable emissions of methane in the energy sector. Our proposal would create obligations for fossil gas, oil and coal operators active in the EU to monitor, measure at source level and transparently report methane emissions of all their assets. It also contains obligations to do three things. First, regularly carry out surveys to detect and repair methane leaks across all components. Second, to stop avoidable venting and flaring of methane into the atmosphere. And third, maximize flaring efficiency in order to minimize losses of methane from flares. But we know that the largest methane emissions associated with the European economy are not happening within our borders. You've already signaled that uh, in your intervention. Instead, they take place during the production and transport of fossil fuels that we import into the EU. So we've also been investing in technologies will, which will give us more live data. You've already mentioned them. Uh, you know, and, and whenever we, we do something, I said this also in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, count on us to come up with another acronym. This time it's MARS, Methane Alert and Response System. Uh, and I think this has the future. I mean, if you see how quickly observation technologies are developing, and this is not just for methane, but I would think at some point uh, we can all observe what emissions from which sources and what the composition of the gases are, are that are, are being emitted. This is going to be the future of how we observe and how we account and how we, well, how we also make countries accountable for, for what they're doing. So this is one element in I, what I think will be a, a future development that will not just cover methane. So, and as you said, at COP27, we've also partnered with a number of major consumers and producers in a new effort on reducing methane emissions in the supply chain of oil, gas, and coal. Uh, we're also reviewing relevant waste, agriculture, and also industrial legislation to consider how to best capture methane. Our biggest challenge, our biggest challenge, as in this sector and in many other sectors, frankly, and in many countries, is in the agricultural sector. The reality is that livestock rearing accounts for about half of the EU's emissions of methane and for more than 6% of all EU greenhouse gas emissions. And in contrast to other pollutants, these emissions have been stable uh, over the last 20 years. So we need to step up our action if we want to reach our 2030 air and climate objectives. And we are tackling it head on. The new common agriculture policy coming into force next year has a budget of 387 billion euros, of which 40% is dedicated to climate action with significant sums needed, needed to go into, for example, improved livestock and manure management, a key sector when it comes to methane. In addition to the Fit for 55 package, uh, the Commission also put forward a proposal for the Industrial Emissions Directive. In fact, this proposal captures only about 13% of the most polluting cattle farm, which are, however, responsible for a staggering 43% of methane uh, emissions. 
So I want to be very clear about this. Our efforts to reduce methane emissions in agriculture are about the biggest polluters and not about small family farms, as sometimes it is portrayed. And, you know, you know this also from other sectors. The big polluters very often hide behind small farms or behind small uh, companies or behind shops to try and let them do their bidding, but we shouldn't let them. And we should be very clear of who is responsible and who should take action. Mitigation of methane emissions can also be an additional and a new source of revenues for farmers. Our repower reuse strategy foresees a 35 BCM contribution of biomethane by 2030. And I've seen all, earlier today, I see Flores here also shall announce that we'll be doing more on biomethane. I really, really hope that is going to be successful. Uh, we, you know, this energy crisis really pushes us into that direction, but we have to make sure it's the right biomethane and we don't create new problems elsewhere. So, yeah, let's work on this. So 35 billion cubic meters of biomethane by 2030. If waste from agriculture is properly used, uh, we can be producing biomethane instead of producing methane emissions. And farmers can make money on waste. Just imagine, you know, that, that logic, if you can turn it around, it's a problem and then you turn it into an opportunity. I think, uh, you know, if, if, if waste is turned into cash, that is something that is a huge opportunity for the whole economy. Trash is cash, as I always say. Um, well, in the climate crisis, delaying action will cause more damage and cost than acting on time. This is something I, I grapple with almost on a daily basis, that especially now in this crisis we're in with the war, uh, with the energy prices being so high and people struggling, saying, slow down, slow down, it's too much. But I, I continue to argue that slowing down means more costs, more difficulties. The longer you wait, the heavier the burden. The quicker you act, the lighter the burden, and the quicker the results uh, will uh, come in. And we don't want to delay action. We can't afford to delay action. And all economic actors have to contribute now. So you mentioned the co-legislators, the Council and Parliament. I count on both of them to maintain our climate ambition and to take swift steps to take forward both the methane regulation and the Industrial Emissions Directive with the right level of ambition. I would like to conclude with a few final words on the role of methane mitigation in Repower EU. With Russian gas imports drastically reduced to 9%, down from 40%, we will be importing at least 100 BCM less of Russian gas in, uh, in a scale of a year. Almost all of these 100 billion cubic meters stay in Russia because there is no alternative infrastructure to export all of this gas anywhere else. In the EU, most of this gap left by Russian gas will be replaced by demand reduction because the cheapest gas today is the gas we don't use. 15% reduction in EU gas demand in the scale of a year means that over 50 billion cubic meters is simply not replaced by alternative sources of gas. In parallel, we are working hard to accelerate the deployment of renewable energy technologies and renewable hydrogen production, imports and infrastructure. So there is no new dash for gas. But the opposite is also not true. We simply cannot pull the plug on gas entirely from one day to the other. This is an illusion we need, especially in, 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 in certain areas of our society. We need, we need to convince people that you can't just you know, pull the plug from one day to uh, the other. Gas will remain a transitional fuel in many sectors and many regions, not just in Europe.
So whatever is not covered by more efficiency, more renewables and more hydrogen needs to be diversified. And also for this, the methane regulation is an absolute must so we can do so responsibly. The more biomethane we can produce ourselves, the less LNG we have to import from elsewhere. And I think this is a reasoning, if you think in terms of Europe's energy sovereignty, you have to think in terms of especially what we can do ourselves. That's uh, reducing our consumption, that is speeding up the transition to renewable energy, and that is looking at, for instance, biomethane as something we, that can be literally homegrown, uh, literally produced on the basis of our waste, literally produced on the basis of what we have here. And even if we do all of that, uh, importing LNG will still be a necessity. Importing pipeline uh, natural gas will still be a necessity. I emphasize this because I don't want anybody to have any illusions of where we are. Uh, I was told many times at COP, Europe is killing the Green Deal. It's finished. Europe is digging up coal again. And I, I think I could prove convincingly that we stick to the Green Deal, that through the negotiations we've held with our co-legislators, um, we can even say that our goal of reducing at least with 55% our emissions by 2030, we can even go beyond that. And on the basis of what we've done so far, I can safely say that we will probably be at at least 57% reduction. And who knows if we continue to negotiate, we can do even better. So Europe is on track to do what we have promised. But... We will have to do some things differently than we had announced previously. Because there is less gas, there will be more coal used in the short run, which means we have to do more on reducing our consumption and we have to move quicker on the transition to renewables and also on the production of more uh, biomethane. So I think this is the honest truth of where we are, uh, what we need to do, and I think it would be very important if we share that information, if we discuss that information, if we listen to those who think we can do better, I'm more than open for that. But I believe this is the way forward for Europe. And you understand very well that for us, turning methane from a problem into an opportunity, turning methane from something that's choking us literally to something that would help us solve the, the problem in the energy sector is something we can do. The technology is there. All we need is political will. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vice President. Indeed, uh, at COP27, this was a message that we heard a lot from global partners around the world, that there is an impression that the EU is reining back climate ambition in light of the Ukraine war. And certainly, quick action on the methane regulation would be one way to prove that narrative wrong. So let's talk more about what's next. We're going to have a lightning round of presentations now. Uh, and you're finally going to hear from Tomas and James, who've been sitting here patiently on the stage. But before I introduce them, we're going to have a video message. I mentioned at the beginning that we are getting some movement in the European Parliament on this file. So we're going to hear a little bit about what's going on over there in that institution from Martin Hodzik, who's a member of the European Parliament from Slovakia, who sits in the Renew Group, uh, Renew Europe Group of Liberals. Uh, Martin has recorded a video message for us where he's going to tell us about the current status of EU regulations on methane and the next steps in the negotiations for this proposal. So let's queue up that video now. Dear participants, we have collectively committed to reduce the global methane emissions at least by 30% in 2030. And now we take the first steps to materialize our promises. 
It's only regrettable that the European Parliament that I represent wasted several months discussing the competencies between its committees. I will not pretend that we are now moving fast in the Parliament towards a trialogue mandate, as the political discussion on the main topics is ahead of us, and at this point we have meetings planned throughout the January, which realistically speaking means that we will adopt our position in February at best. Nevertheless, I hope that being urged not only by the climate crisis but also by the energy crisis will push all political groups to accelerate our talks and most importantly to agree on ambitious position. Despite the different starting positions that we have, we cannot afford to lose more time as it is almost a year since the Commission has published its proposal. We cannot let tens of billions of cubic meters of methane be wasted by flaring and venting into the atmosphere while people are freezing, while households cannot afford to pay the bills, and while we all have simple, relatively cheap or even profitable tools to slow down climate change simply by restricting venting and monitoring and repairing the energy assets. I would like to thank Mr. Timmermans for being very firm on this during the COP27 because he said it's very rightly, it's like madness, flaring gas as well, it's crazy. The EU should not protect backsliders but trigger change inside and outside of the EU. The methane regulation is an environmental, social and economic opportunity that we have to seize. Which brings me to the, my priorities that I'm defending in the negotiations. We have to clarify the language. Leak is a leak and vent is a vent. We have to make sure all leaks are detected and repaired and that routine venting is minimized to situation that forces operators to vent, such as for safety reasons. Also, we have to make sure that the best and most sensitive technology is being used for detection and we are ready for the future developments. Otherwise, we undermine the technological development in the EU and punish all forward-looking companies that we have in Europe and that knock on our door daily. I believe that we have to in some way include imports in the framework. Otherwise, we will omit the majority of our emissions in the energy sector. There are already studies that analyze the possibility to act on this line within the international trade rules. We need a sound international monitoring system and a transparency with regard to emissions and to streamline access to environmental justice worldwide by leading by example. I will stop here, not to cut from the time for other speakers and discussions, and I really apologize for not being able to be with you today, but I hope and wish you a fruitful discussion. So there we have it. There's an outline of what's going on in terms of regulation right now and then what the next steps might be in the European Parliament. Let's next hear a kind of scientific overview of where we are right now. I'd like to introduce Thomas Rockman, who's a professor at Utrecht University, uh, who will be telling us about the impact of methane emissions from the oil and gas sector uh, from a scientific viewpoint. Thomas? Yes, thanks a lot. And indeed, I'm going to present uh, a little bit of facts or the, some figures to the sentences that you have seen before. So I've uh, prepared some slides here. And I want to convince you that methane really plays an important ro role in reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement. Uh, I want to focus on a couple of points. First, I will recapture uh, why methane matters for the Paris Agreement. I will try to convince you that it's necessary to have robust measurement-based estimates of methane emissions to implement mitigation technologies at the speed and the scale that they need to be done. Uh, then I will inform you about the 
um, quantification infrastructure or capacity that we have been building up in Europe over the past years uh, in the scientific world. And I will end with some examples where we have, where we have applied these techniques to quantify emissions throughout Europe. So let's start with the first one. Oops, I don't manage to change the slide now. Yeah, there we go. Um, what you see here on the left-hand side is the global warming that we have realized since pre-industrial times. It's 1.1 degrees um, overall on a global scale uh, in the decade nine, uh, 2010 to 2019. And on the right-hand side, you see the contributions from the long-lived greenhouse gases to this warming. And I focus only on the long-lived greenhouse gases. You see now the figure behind the statement that methane is responsible for roughly 45% or so of the global warming. But even if, as a scientist, if I take the, the worst estimate, the lower envelope of this arrow bar there, it's at least 25% of the global warming at the moment is um, caused by methane increase in the atmosphere. Um, what is methane doing now? It is increasing, and you have also heard that. This is the methane curve, global averaged methane in the last more than 30 years since we have done measurements in the atmosphere. And what you see is there was actually a period where we thought maybe methane is not increasing uh, fast anymore. That may have been related actually to the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's one of the theories. But in the last years, it has really increased tremendously. And as you have heard, the last year that's on record now is the fastest methane increase that we have ever observed in the atmosphere. And of course, this is worrying because it's also really a limitation of reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement. And that's shown in the next slide here. You see on the right, well, you see the total anthropogenic emissions in million tons of methane per year in 2020 and the projections for 2030. And you see that if you go on like planned or business as usual, the emissions will not decrease, but they will increase. On the other hand, the plans or the trajectories for reaching the one and a half degree uh, warming limit, they actually propose that emissions need to be cut all trajectories that are in agreement with this one and a half degree warming goal, they require a reduction of methane of 40 to 45 percent. And this is, well, the numbers on which the global methane pledge is also built on. So that's an important fraction of emissions that need to be um, reduced here. Another interesting point is um, also a positive note that if we actually manage to do that, it would, and it was also mentioned before, it would reduce um, the warming in 2050 by about a quarter of a degree. So this is a substantial reduction in warming that we well may that may save our uh, that we can save on our trajectory to reach the Paris Agreement. Well, is this feasible? It was also already mentioned. The global um, methane assessment has split these saved emissions into the different sectors that was, were mentioned: agriculture, waste, and fossil fuels. And you see here the fossil fuel actually has a big contribution. These are basically useless emissions. No one has any benefit by leakages from fossil fuel emissions, so they should really be tackled. And that's why I'm going to talk uh, mostly about fossil fuel emissions. Um, now I want to turn to the point that we need measurement-based estimates to realize the emission reductions. And I start with an example from the United States, where you see in the dark blue bar, the methane intensity, that means the emitted methane per produced methane 
across the US and the Environmental Protection Agency now estimates that 1.3% of all the methane that is produced gets into the atmosphere, so leaks out in one or the other way. If my American colleagues now do campaigns and they try to measure in different production regions, they usually find that these emissions are a factor two, sometimes a factor three higher. So the emissions that we have on paper, they don't really, um, they, they don't mirror what we see in the atmosphere, where you cannot really hide molecules anymore. There's also again a good point in this figure, the green bar here, is what the leading industry partners put as target. They say we can actually manage 0.2%. And this is a good news. If we actually manage that throughout the sector, we are there. We can reduce the emissions by the 75% or 80% that were mentioned. So it's even recognized by the industry that this is feasible. So that was from the unit. Yes, let's go to Europe. And I want to pick one example uh, on a study that we have been doing in Romania. Um, when you go to the European Emission Inventory Report, and I read this when we were studying Romania, uh, that is now the citation, the decrease relative to 1990s that was still based on the Paris Agreement, of course, uh, the, the yeah, Paris Agreement, um, um, the decrease relative to 1990 was mainly caused by some minor changes, but also a decrease in production and the change of methodology in Romania. And that is interesting, of course. You, all the country emissions are listed there, and you pick up the emissions and you make a table of that. You see the following picture here. So in 1990, the um, left bar here, you see the total emissions. These are the two colors together. And the dark blue emissions are the reported emissions from Romania. You see that more than half, even two-thirds of the emissions that were reported came from one country only in the EU. And when you look at 2017, you see that the emissions have been reduced in tremendously, but Romania is really a much smaller share now. So Romanian emissions have actually, the reported emissions have been reduced by 95%. How can that be? Well, it is actually stated also in the report. If you look at the figure, these are the country emissions by year. The x-axis is the time scale. And you see the, the hashed or the crossed area. This is the country Romania. Well, what happens there? Interesting, right? From one year to the other, emissions drop by maybe a factor of 10. How can that be? Well, it's also stated there. The emission factor for Romania was changed from the one from developing countries to developed countries in 2000. And of course, it's all according to regulations, and it's also nice, and it's also transparent. But this is now part of the numbers that we are using in the EU to report our emissions and also report our pathways towards reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement. And I'm not going to say which one of these now is right, but I'm going to say none of these factors was actually based on measurements in Romania. So we can actually not know which emission factor is correct, and that's why we actually went there, and I will show you some results in a couple of minutes. First of all, I will, talk, um, I will tell you about a project. It was the Marie Skolovska Curie Initial Training Network, where we put together nine academic institutions in Europe and 16 non-academic partners, often from industry. And we, we made use of the really exciting new development 10 years ago that new instruments became available that can quantify methane emissions within a second and to a super high precision, one parts per billion. And this is comparable to the increase in precision that you see now in the satellite sector. So a, a decade ago, we had that for the in-situ sector. 
What can you do then? You can put these instruments on vehicles, on drones and aircraft, and you can go around and you will see in real life, you will see these methane emissions. And that really changed the field tremendously. So we were doing a lot of training of students. We had uh, conferences, of course, but we also went to the field and we did emission, uh, measurements and we applied these new techniques to, new, uh, to many um, emission points in the project that is called MIMO squared methane goes mobile measurements and modeling. That's what we did in this project. And to end, I will show you three examples of the application of these mobile methods. The first one is from Poland. The Siberian, Upper Siberian coal basin is the biggest, well, includes the biggest single emission points in Europe. You can even see this now, these days also from the satellite, the ventilation shafts from the coal mines. So we went there and we teamed up with a project that was very early in our project. We teamed up with the um, DLR from Germany that had an aircraft there and we had vehicles. And you see now these yellow lines, these are flight tracks, which are actually encountering the Siberian coal mining basin. And the other color, green and blue and red lines, these are vehicle tracks that we carried out on the ground. And then we put all this data together and we produce these curtains that you see on the bottom left and where the red colors means we have high emissions. And this is actually a cross-section along a downwind flight leg that goes now to the ground to several stages across the atmosphere. And from these measurements, we, we estimated the emissions for the total um, up, upper Silesian coal basin. And the good thing in this case was our estimates from atmospheric measurements, they really agree with the reported numbers. And this is also nice that sometimes the reported numbers agree with what we find in the atmosphere. I will go to the second example now, which are the upstream emissions in the Romanian, southern Romanian oil and gas production region. We went with a large team of scientists from more than 10 institutions with many vehicles and drones and aircraft and made measurements. We went to more than 1,000 individual oil wells to visit them. We quantified more than 300 of them, really with a high precision quantification. We also made aircraft measurements. You see that on the figure on the top right, where you see individual production uh, locations which were provided by the operator. And then the circle around that is methane. And in the corner, you see the plume of this cluster of production regions that is emitted and that's picked up by the aircraft measurements. And from these measurements, we calculate emission rates again. We also went with an industrial partner with an optical gas imaging um, camera and they made these images that you probably have seen from, from James and others. Uh, the image will turn to the infrared in a second and then you will see that on the right hand side close to where you see also this uh, pressure dial, there is simply an open end where gas is simply vented to the atmosphere. Yeah, it is coming out now, you see the black plume, this is methane absorbing in the infrared and simply going out to the atmosphere without any prevention. And it's not the only example that we found like that uh, in Romania. We also found, and that is the last figure here on the bottom right, that the emissions, they have a skewed distribution as we call it. That means that there are a few sites which have disproportionately high emissions. And you see here now that the, the lowest or the only 10% of the uh, sites here on the x-axis, they are responsible for 50 or 60% of the total emissions. So if we can find these sites and fix the emissions, we have already reduced them by a factor of two. The final example I want to give is about something that we can do really in our own environment. These are city emissions. 
we had uh, these new analyzers, we deployed them on cars in many different cities. And the example that I show here is now from my home city, Utrecht. This is a movie where you see that we really go through the cities on a street level, and each of these peaks is a methane emission. And it can be a leak. It can also be an emission from the wastewater system, for example. And we are trying also to use other tracers to decide what is now a gas leak, what comes from the wastewater system, what is a combustion source. And you see here that we can cover entire cities, medium-sized cities, in two weeks or so, and really make a very nice 3D picture of these emission rates. And that also means then provide information to the DSOs to go and fix these leaks. We find generally tens or hundreds of gas leaks in each city. Uh, we surveyed more than 10 cities in the EU, and each city has a certain fingerprint of emissions. So some of them have more gas leaks, other of them have more biogenic emissions. And uh, we have demonstrated now with these, that with these um, measurements, if you do them regularly, if you go more often than the gas utilities actually do, you will find the leaks and you can reduce them and you can, again, reduce emissions um, quickly. And uh, my, my last fic uh, picture here on the bottom right shows the largest leak that we have found so far. It was in the Amsterdam Harbor region. And that is also related to the point that this is profitable because we found two leaks there, really big ones. And if you calculate the climate impact of only two gas leaks, it's the climate impact of 4,000 cars, if you calculate it over a year, these emissions. And it has a consumer value of 150,000 euros. And that was not even with the really current gas prices, but it was already with the um, war, Ukraine war uh, gas prices calculated. So that means by only finding these two leaks, I think we could employ a person to do these measurements for a year in many other cities and many other environments. So to conclude, I hope I've shown you that methane does matter, that we have the instruments, that we have the methods to detect the emissions, and that it's also important to do these measurements to base the, me uh, the methane emissions actually on quantitative measurements that we get with these new analyzers. Thanks a lot for your attention. Thanks, Thomas. Some really interesting data there, and I think it's, it's excellent context for our discussion. And indeed, we'll be talking more about the uh, particularities of the Romanian situation in our first panel uh, when we're hearing from Mihai. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce James Torito, uh, who is the Methane Pollution Prevention Campaign Manager at the Clean Air Task Force. Uh, James will be giving us a presentation on the documentation of methane emissions as part of the Cut Methane EU campaign. Thank you. And, and thank you, Thomas, for an excellent presentation. I mean, what Thomas has done is really laid a foundation of, you know, what the scientific research is around methane in the EU um, and, and looking at the empirical uh, science behind where emissions are occurring. What I want to show is what our campaign's been doing over the last two years since we launched it uh, in, in 2020, looking at where major sources of methane emissions are occurring across the oil and gas sector. So, um, so yeah, we, we've been uh, documenting methane emissions across, um, sorry, just, um, across the EU using one of these optical gas imaging infrared cameras that Thomas has, has talked about in his presentation. You know, these are very simple, simple tools and instruments that are calibrated uh, to look at methane emissions on the infrared spectrum and can easily be used and deployed. They're fairly inexpensive when you talk about, you know, 150,000 
uh, euros a month or, or a year from, from one, two emission sources. Uh, when you start to add that up, you, the return on investment with these cameras, training uh, staff and getting them into the field and deploying them on a frequent basis just uh, quickly gets a, a high return on investment. So um, we've been using these cameras across Europe. And over the last two years, we've, we've visited 14 different countries in Europe, um, surveying more than 300 oil and gas sites uh, across these different countries and looking and, and finding approximately 500 individual sources of emissions. Um, these are sources of emissions that could include all sorts of um, instruments across the oil and gas supply chain at all sorts of facilities. Um, oil wells, I'll, I'll get into the facilities a little bit more, but wells, everything from upstream production to downstream and uh, distribution with, with a little bit less, um, uh, in, you know, less work than, than Thomas's team has put into it. Um, but, uh, what, you know, the thing about where these um, leaks and emission sources are taking place is that uh, just, just looking at a model of, of, you know, what Europe's oil and gas uh, supply chain looks like, you, you go from, you know, some limited onshore production, a lot of imports through LNG facilities as well as import pipeline um, pipelines, uh, and then you have kind of distribution grid across the entire continent, including a lot of gathering boosting stations, processing plants, transmission compressor stations, underground storage facilities. So there's a lot of different uh, facilities, uh, you know, across across Europe where you're going to have gas emissions, um, and then you have the distribution grids, which Thomas thoroughly thoroughly um, looked at across the city study. Um, we've primarily focused on these particular areas in, in the upstream and transmission sector because with the instruments that we've been using and, and using optical gas imaging, these are most ripe um, for detecting emissions in those areas. When you're looking at um, down, downstream distribution, some of the other equipment that um, the science folks have been using is, is more relevant in those areas. But the optical gas imaging camera is one of many tools also. Um, especially when, when you're thinking about, um, you know, looking at large-scale emission sources, um, there aren't these super emitters that we're seeing. We'll get into this in the second, third, second panel with Christian and the Kairos team. Um, you know, the work that they've been doing, you, you don't see a lot of the super emitter sources in Europe. So a lot of the prevention of emissions are going to happen at the ground level using the types of equipment that we've been using um, you know, the optical gas imaging as well as the, the other equipment that Thomas's team has been using in these mobile measurement units. Um, and so that's where you're, you're looking at the, the kind of production processing, transmission, and, and, and distribution systems. So, you know, running through um, some of the different sort types of sources that we see and, and how easy these are to fix, you know, Thomas has shown a, a fair number of these videos as well of oil wells. Um, you know, I think the point is that this isn't just happening in Romania. Romania is certainly a major problem for uh, your, the EU when it's thinking about its methane emissions, but it's happening across, um, ac across Europe. And, you know, we're looking at oil and gas sites. We're looking at underground gas pipelines where emissions have, have been detected, where we've detected them. Um, also, you know, storage tanks, whether it's continuous venting emissions or 
intermittent venting uh, that's being you know, allowed with, with flashing of uh, methane to reduce pressure. Um, and, and then there's often you know, component failures that occur at sites. I mean, these are the kind of things that you see when you go out into the field and you sort of spend some time surveying these facilities. You quickly can see uh, a lot of different sources of emissions. And these are the types of things that, you know, through process planning, through, um, through uh, le leak detection and repair programs, you can quickly find, mitigate, emit. Um, for venting sites like this, it takes a little more planning in terms of what you'll actually do with the emissions or the methane instead of venting into the atmosphere but rerouting it into the gas system. Um, but what I think the point of this is that, you know, methane is, is happening. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm trying to go back. Um, methane emissions are happening everywhere uh, across Europe. You know, it's uh, for a while um, there, there hasn't, you know, there's kind of talk that Europe wasn't as bad as elsewhere, which is certainly true. The amount of production uh, of oil and gas in Europe is fairly low. We've discussed that, you know, in the upstream sectors where, you know, a lot of Europe's methane emissions are occurring. So this, these figures have been mentioned a little bit, but I want to dive into this some more. Um, you know, methane's, uh, Europe's methane footprint, EU's methane footprint goes well beyond its borders. But it is the largest importer of oil and gas, and it has the largest methane footprint of any importer uh, country from the upstream, the upstream emissions. Um, so there's over 10 million uh, tons of methane being emitted from, uh, from suppliers to the EU. And now this figure is uh, from the IEA. It's about two years old. Um, obviously, this includes a lot of gas coming from Russia, but the figure is not going to change significantly when you think about uh, changes in new suppliers. Um, you know, a lot of the new suppliers that Europe is striking deals with are not signatories of the Global Methane Pledge. They're not signatories of a lot of other uh, methane initiatives that, um, that have taken place around the world. And so, you know, thinking about uh, an import standard in some of these countries is going to be incredibly important, too. Um, I think, you know, the, the point of showing a lot of these videos, too, and, and kind of talking through my um, slides and what we've seen is that a lot of this work is very simple and very easy. Um, you know, go, I've been out with uh, a lot of engineers from companies walking through their sites who haven't been out with a camera before. Uh, and, you know, I walk around with them, show them what's happening on their site because they haven't actually ever taken a look, in some cases, uh, at their facilities. And, and then they quickly can spot what's the problem and fix it. Um, and in many cases, it can be fixed within a few days. Um, and it, and it's sometimes it's as simple, simple as that. And so that's why you know, leak detection and repair is one key part of uh, the methane regulation that needs to be in place. It needs to be comprehensive. It needs to be regular. Uh, and we need, companies need to just get out into the field. Um, I think you know, one of the things that we've realized is that uh, you know, across EU, there are certainly good companies that are doing well and performing well. There are countries where you know, people are, you know, countries are performing well in terms of emissions intensities. Uh, but you know, it's, it's not all the same. It's very different across different countries. And so that's uh, what is so critical about this regulation. So 
um, making sure that everyone's on the same page. And, and I want to finish with something that we've recently uh, done, which is a, a public opinion poll. So it's showing, you know, looking at, you know, people's interests in methane emissions um, regulations. And, and so we did a survey earlier this summer in uh, Germany, Poland, uh, Italy, and uh, France, looking at um, people's interest in, in reducing methane regulations. So it's clear that there's overwhelming uh, interest in strong regulation of methane with 90% with of, of people in support of, of these regulations. And we even found very, very high results when people were responding to whether or not there would be increases on, on gas prices, which is certainly not something that's necessarily going to be uh, the case when you're saving a lot of, of um, saving a lot of money from the programs that are being implemented. But we want to test different attitudes. And so we still have very, very strong high attitudes towards uh, methane regulations. So there's a lot of support in the countries that we surveyed. And so, um, with that, I, I will end there, and then we can move on to this next talk. Great. Thanks very much, James. So we're now going to move on to the first panel, where we'll be really diving into how to best cut domestic methane emissions. But before we do that, we have a short video to show you, which is going to show exactly how methane emissions can be cut. So let's cue up that video now. Did you know that the fastest way to slow global warming is to reduce emissions from the gas methane? Methane is an invisible, odorless greenhouse gas, but it's powerful. And according to the IPCC, it's responsible for about 0.5 degrees of the global warming we've experienced to date. Methane traps 84 times more heat than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years that it's released into the air. And the amount of it in our atmosphere has been surging for the last 15 years. The faster the planet's temperatures rise, the more likely and the sooner we will see irreversible damage to our environment. So where does all this methane come from? 60% of the methane in our atmosphere comes from human activity, and the rest comes from natural sources like wetlands and permafrost melting. Methane from natural sources will keep rising while the planet heats up. But methane from human sources is preventable with the right public policies in place. Most methane pollution caused by human activity comes from fossil fuels, agriculture, and waste. 35% of methane comes from oil, gas, and coal. 32% of methane comes from animals raised for meat and dairy. 19% comes from waste, such as landfills and sewage. Another 8% comes from rice cultivation, and the rest comes from biomass burning, biogas production, and industry. A growing number of global leaders agree that cutting methane pollution is the fastest way to slow global warming. Fortunately, we have low-cost solutions to reduce methane emissions quickly in the next decade. More than 115 countries have signed on to the Global Methane Pledge, which aims to reduce global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And scientists say we can go even further to prevent a staggering 0.3 degrees of warming by 2040. The number might sound small, but the impact could be huge by preventing water shortages for millions, loss of food crops, increase in droughts, and much more. We cannot keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius without deep cuts to both methane and CO2. 
it is critical that policymakers around the world move quickly and aggressively to cut methane emissions now. Without immediate action, we won't meet the climate goals to reduce this powerful greenhouse gas and slow the rate of warming on our planet. Hey, so welcome back. So we're now going to dive into the first panel where we'll be talking about how to best cut domestic methane emissions from fossil fuels in Europe. And I'm joined here on stage by Alessia Verone, EU Affairs Director at the Clean Air Task Force, and by Mihai Stoicha, Executive Director at the Romanian NGO 2 Celsius. And we are joined uh, by video. By, uh, remotely by Tomas de Oliveira Brederiol from the International Energy Agency, the independent intergovernmental organization based in Paris. Thank you all so much for joining us for this conversation. Um, Alessia, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now with current EU regulations on methane. The regulation has been published now for almost a year, and we can see that both the Council and the Parliament have made a lot of progress towards reaching their own position on this regulation. Of course, the Council starts earlier, so they are a bit closer to reach their general position. And when we look at the Commission proposal, we can see that there were already a lot of very positive elements in it. So you had that MRV progressively going more granular. You had frequent elder with frequency part being really important in that sentence, and you had a general ban of root inventing and flowering with a list of exceptions. And so all these are very positive approach. But what we needed to see is that the co-legislator needed to fix some of the technical issue and to increase the ambition. So on the technical issue, major regulation is going to be a very technical regulation, and we need to have the technicality right because any kind of gaps or unclarity could hamper the ability of the regulation to cut methane emission. And we've seen that both the Council and the Parliament have dedicated a lot of attention to address this technical issue. For example, related to sampling representativeness for MRV, related to the technology that can be used for elder, related to venting by design equipment. We've seen that, for example, in the Council, each version has been more and more accurate on how to address this issue. And in the Parliament, we've seen a lot of MEP tabling amendments to address these technical parts. So that's on the technical side that needed to be addressed by the co-legislator. But there is also an ambition part that needed to be addressed. So as it was mentioned before, the EU has been taking the lead internationally to push for cutting methane emission all around the world. And so we do want to have the more ambitious regulation in the world that other countries can use as an example when they're developing their own. And for that, we need to be a bit more ambitious than what we have been now. So for example, on elder, we need to move from quarterly elder to monthly one. With quarterly elder, you can cut 80% of the emission due to leak. With monthly, you can cut 90%. And what we've seen in both the Council and in the Parliament is that there has been a lot of effort to, on the contrary, weaken this kind of frequency instead of increasing their ambition. So that is a bit concerning. Now we're getting closer of both the Council, getting the general approach, hopefully very soon. The Parliament is also hoping to vote the reports just after Christmas. So we're getting closer to there, and we really hope to see them address not only the technical side, but also address the level of ambitions that this regulation should have. So that's what's happening at EU level. Let's hear about what's happening at international level 
from Tomas. Uh, Tomas, what is happening with methane internationally? Hello, can you hear me well, just to double check? Yes, we can. Yes. Okay, great. So what we, we have been seeing internationally is really uh, methane abatement going from moment to momentum. I mean, until 2020, there were very few countries that were taking action to reduce methane emissions, especially in the fossil fuel sector. Now, since uh, COP last year, we saw the launch of the Global Methane Pledge. We saw uh, 100 countries signing up to it. And now at COP27, uh, we had 150 countries that have signed on to the pledge. And these countries now cover the vast majority of oil and gas production. For coal supply, that is still not the case. I mean, that there's a very important uh, supplier and market for coal, which is China. China is engaged in methane abatement. They recognize the importance of it. They are looking uh, to reduce methane emissions in, in their fossil fuel sector, but they haven't signed on to, do, to the Global Methane Pledge yet. And it, it's not only about signing on to the pledge. Um, many people uh, are, here are aware that the, the pledge is on a global level. It doesn't put on a target for specific countries. But now the, the pledge has very clear pathways. There's a pathway for energy, one for fusion and food and agriculture, and another one for waste. And all of these have funding streams to support methane abatement and strategies to bridge uh, exist, existing gaps for further action. And I, I'd like to just spend a few moments uh, on the energy pathway. Uh, the energy pathway um, sets out to capture the maximum potential of cost-effective methane mitigation in the oil gas sector. So right now at the current gas prices, uh, as we have heard from Jonathan Banks and from the Vice President uh, Franz Zimmermans, um, gas prices are really high. So almost all of the technically uh, abatable methane emissions are cost-effective. And also signing by signing into onto the energy pathway, uh, countries are pledging to eliminate routine flaring as soon as possible and no later than 2030. So we're gaining attraction. Uh, we've heard also about the joint declaration from energy importers and exporters on reducing greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels. Um, the US, the EU, Japan, Canada, Norway, Singapore, and the United Kingdom, some, so many of the key markets there uh, have committed uh, to working towards uh, creation of an international market for fossil energy that minimizes flaring methane and CO2 emissions across the value chain to the fullest extent practicable. So it's it's also a major step. You've also heard about uh, the launch of the of Mars, the methane alert and response system. This will be a system uh, coordinated by the International Methane Emissions Observatory, which will facilitate the detection of major leaks uh, that and help uh, regulators and the industry to address those leaks as quickly as possible. And we are not only seeing action at the international level, we are always, also seeing a lot of uh, regulation and policy efforts on a uh, national level. Uh, this month, uh, Nigeria became the first African country to regulate methane emissions from its oil and gas sector. And the regulations are quite comprehensive. It's always possible to go further, but as a first step, it's a, a very important one. Earlier this year, uh, Colombia became the first South American country to regulate methane emissions from its oil and gas sector. Also a very important step. Uh, as we heard, Canada is currently working to strengthen its regulatory framework to achieve uh, the reduction of at least 75% uh, of methane emissions in its oil and gas sector 
by 2030 relative to uh, 2012 levels. So that's uh, a lot of ambition that has been followed through uh, by action and by regulatory proposals. And I could go on and on here, talk about you know, how uh, Pemex is being supported by US EPA, how Malaysia's national and gas uh, company and regulator Petronas has announced the target, how Egypt has uh, completed, is pledging to complete an oil and gas meeting roadmap. But I mean, this is just a few examples to show that, you know, we are gaining momentum. Uh, there's still a lot to go. I mean, as we've seen, methane emissions are not going down, but hopefully this action will lead to reductions in the near future. Thanks, Tomas. That's a good overview. And you can really see there's a lot of moving parts there. This is kind of a, like a giant global puzzle where all these different policies are going to have to fit together. Uh, Mihai, let's turn to you next. So we heard from Tomas just a moment ago how Romania has a, a special place in terms of methane emissions in Europe. We know that a significant chunk of EU oil and gas methane emissions occur in Romania. What's going on there right now? Uh, in terms of methane emissions, and, and why is it that Romania has such a prominent place uh, in methane? I think it has the, like, it's the fourth place in methane emission from oil and gas in Europe, if I'm not mistaken, right now. So um, you have to understand that Romania has the entire supply chain of oil and gas production. So uh, it has a history of 120 years of production. But just to understand the level of the infrastructure right now is uh, um, oil and gas wells and the infrastructure around them, so in the upstream sector, have been operational for around between 30 and 60 years. Um, in the storage, so midstream sectors, uh, we have uh, storage that has been installed in the you know, 1950s, mid-1950s, and with minimal interventions in that sector for the past 30 years. Um, so you can see it's a, it's, it, it, it's a large, it's a very large infrastructure, but at the same time, it's a very poorly maintained infrastructure. So, uh, um, yeah, as Thomas was saying earlier, um, uh, methane emissions from the oil and gas sector have decreased significantly. They have almost halved since 2003. Um, but this doesn't say much because at the same time, there's no measurements that are happening in Romania. So these are estimations. Romania is uh, reporting uh, methane emissions in its uh, national uh, inventory to the UNFCCC uh, by tier one. Tier one, which means that it's general estimations worldwide, uh, no site level or facility level measurements. Um, I. I mean, the companies, uh, there are two companies in Romania um, that produce most of the oil and gas, and that's uh, Petrom and Romgaz. They cover about 90% of production. Uh, and these companies have taken very, very few steps um, to, uh, towards abatement of methane emissions. And that's, I think, very important. At the same time, at the level of uh, in terms of governance, uh, Romania is really not doing anything. So, uh, you know, very, you know, very shortly on that, it's not part of any of the international mechanisms. Um, it, the Romanian oil and gas companies are um, not part of um, OGMP 2.0. We've talked about it earlier, and um, so it's 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 not part of the knowledge sharing that's happening at international level, although, you know, it has this big 
leaky infrastructure. And hopefully with the Romeo, uh, uh, Romeo study that uh, Thomas presented earlier and its outcomes, we're going to see a lot more that Romania can do um, in, in terms of reducing its upstream and midstream emissions because, you know, it, the initial findings is um, basically, um, you know, like oil wells, uh, gas wells, compressor stations, um, the, and, you know, the leaks and storage tanks, the leaks that are happening from this infrastructure can be easily covered with Eldar, and I think Thomas can say a little bit more about that. You know, the IEA um, basically estimates that 70% of Romania's oil and gas emissions can be reduced uh, with um, no net cost. So, well, actually, uh, only 43% can be reduced with no net cost, but 70% uh, can be reduced with very low costs. So, I want, Alessia, I want to go back to the, the EU proposal because we're hearing that this can be done with no net cost, that this is a no-brainer in terms of saving companies money and saving the climate. Uh, and yet, this proposal came out a full year ago and we haven't seen fast action on it. Um, why do you think this file has seemed to stall in the EU legislatures? And uh, have you seen any impetus when Repower EU came out, so this is the Commission's proposal to respond to the energy crisis from the Ukraine war by phasing out Russian fossil fuels. Did Repower EU give any oomph, any, <laughs> any additional speed to this proposal working its way through the legislatures? So first of all, the reason why it was still at first was because in the parliament you had a bit of a conflict of competency between two different committees. This legislation is very clearly on the energy sector, but at the same time it has an environmental goal. And so the parliament was a bit delayed to decide which committee will have the lead. They decided to go for a colleague in the end. In the council, obviously the, the, the work was also delayed by the crisis. I mean, last year when we started the work, we were fighting one crisis, the climate one, and then suddenly you had to fight two crises at once, both the climate one and the energy security one. And of course that took a lot of time from the people working on the energy legislation in Brussels, both in the Council and in the Parliament, to start focusing on all the emergency measures that we were developing. To be honest, I think we prefer all to have the people take their time to get the legislation right, instead of getting the legislation fast. And contrary to a lot of legislation like the ETS or the red one that I also discussed, this one is a new one. So policymakers also need to have the time to build the expertise to understand all the different aspects of the legislation so that they can come up with the measures that are needed. Now, when we look at Repora, there is a clear connection between our energy crisis and the methane one. As it was mentioned before, Today, with the leaks and with all the venting and flaring that we're doing, we're kind of wasting a lot of gas that we would really need to use. So there is a connection between making sure that all the gas in the pipeline actually make it to the consumer and trying to address our energy security issue at the moment. And so we definitely hope to see more of a connection there, but we already saw some kind of connection in the Repower EU communication strategy and a lot of methane consideration being integrated in our discussion with new import partner for energy. However, it's a bit difficult to say that it has really helped the methane legislation 
since I think this last month, a lot of the energy discussion has been overshadowed by the crisis we're facing now in Europe. Yeah, indeed, that's certainly been sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room, not to mix metaphors. Um, but we know, we know that the, you know, the, the EU has this proposal on the table and countries around the world are looking at it. But Tomas, in terms of how this fits into the global picture, so we just had COP27 conclude over in Egypt and we heard a little bit uh, in the speeches a, a little while ago about um, the, the movements from COP26 to COP27. I think really most of the movement we saw at COP26 in Glasgow, but there was a little bit at COP27, and I think uh, we heard that 95% of the NDCs now include action on methane emissions. Um, from your vantage point, what concretely came out of COP27 in terms of methane emissions, and would you characterize it as a success in terms of methane? I would say that we are moving in the right direction. So one of the key things about the Global Methane Pledge is the, are the methane action plans. So once we have countries setting up action plans and defining how they will reduce emissions, then we can go into the action plans and see what they are actually doing or not. And they will be accountable for you know, the pledge that they have taken. So I think it, it was pro, it was we saw progress because we saw many countries delivering methane action plans, and I'm I'm hopeful that you know by next COP we will have all countries that signed on to the pledge uh, having a, an action plan and hopefully already already delivering on some of it. I would also say that there was a major development in between the two COPs, uh, which was the Inflation Reduction Act in, in the United States. I think well the United States is one of the largest oil and gas methane emissions in the world, and this act brought uh, into place or will put into place a price on methane emissions. This is not something that we see in the proposed uh, EU regulations for methane emissions, but it's quite a significant price and it's a price that could potentially really uh, change the market. And it is proposed that it will be accompanied by a robust measurement system. So hopefully that development will make a big difference for the situation in the US, which now with uh, all of the, the changes in imports, uh, gas imports, the EU uh, would have a greater role in terms of the imported um, emissions footprint of the EU. To this issue of a price on methane, we actually have a question related to that from the audience. I'll go to that in just a, a second. Um, but first, Mihai, I wanted to ask you about your expectations for the EU approach um, coming from the Romanian perspective, but also looking at how it's going to affect the EU policy in this area as a whole, what are you expecting from the EU approach? What are you hoping for from the EU approach? Well, we, I think we haven't done anything to tackle imports, and I think this is the, this is the largest problem that we have at the moment. I mean, even coming from a country like Romania with the entire supply chain of oil and gas, um, the, um, the, the, you know, the level of imports that we're seeing um, is, um, does, uh, um, you know, in Europe in general, does outweigh what we produce. So um, the expectation would be that we would find a way to sort of um, either tax um, the incoming uh, oil and gas to Europe or, or find a way for buyers, you know, buyers of oil and gas in Europe to um, uh, to know at least what they're buying. 
you know, uh, uh, to have it um, sort of, um, let's say, uh, that we know basically if anything's being done at uh, uh, international level. And I have this story about Gazprom, for example, which has reported on the basis of OGMP uh, that its, its fugitive emissions are at the lowest level in the world. And if we cannot verify that, so if there's no verification on companies at all at international level, in Romania we have the same example. It's like it's it's, it's very much reliant on, on self-reporting, and um, if there's no uh, third-party verification of those figures, then again we will have a, a, a very big problem in um, you know looking and choosing um, the, the the right imports that come into Europe that are tackling fugitive emissions. Well, let me take a question from the audience. Again, if you're here in the room, you can ask your question by scanning the QR code, typing them into Slido. I'll get them up here on the tablet. Um, first question is from Leonard Payets. Um, Alessia, I'll put this to you first. So are there considerations to introduce a CBAM-like mechanism to reduce imported methane emissions, like we were just talking about? Uh, CBAM is the what we're not supposed to call a carbon border tax, uh, but it is the amount that imports would be charged uh, to make up for if they don't face as stringent climate legislation in the country that they're coming from. Um, has this been discussed at all for methane? Not really. At the moment, we're really looking at how we can cut methane emission by putting measure and requirement. The CBAM hasn't been adopted yet, so it's a bit difficult to see already how you can implement it on another kind of gas. At the same time, if we do have a CBAM for methane, we already can see that some of the country could be good partners in developing it. Like as was mentioned, now that the US has a price on methane, it would also make it easier to discuss it internally. Internationally, sorry. But um, the price, like a Doberbad with a CBAM or like with a tax, does need to work with requirements on how to do elder. And that's what we see in other parts of the world too, even in the US. Sure, they have family and tax, but they also have to develop requirements on how to do MLV and how to do elder. You cannot just have one without the other. On the CBAM part, um, I would say it's definitely an option that deserves some attention in the future, but we will need to keep it very separated between uh, methane and CO2 because it's very difficult to have the two of them together given the fact that they have very different global warming potential. But that's definitely an option that could be explored in the future. Yeah, you mentioned the price, so Tomas, I want to come back to you on this issue uh, because, of course, with CBAM, one of the issues has been that the EU has a price on carbon. The US does not. That's going to make CBAM a little difficult when you're looking at whether it would apply to the US. And for methane, we seem to have the opposite situation, that uh, the US will have a price on methane and the EU will not. Um, so how is price going to factor in there? And do you think there would be any possibility for something like a, an import tax for methane? There is certainly some space in that area, but I think, yeah, we, we first really need to start measuring better emissions. It will be very hard to enforce any kind of tax on imports if we don't have a good idea of what are the level of emissions in different countries. Right now, satellites do provide us some information and hopefully next year with the launch of uh, MethanSat, we, we are going to be seeing a uh, 
really a step change in how satellites work because it's really targeted on oil and gas methane emissions. But still, I mean, we won't be able to see in very cloudy regions, in very snowy regions. So we can't rely only on satellites to deliver the information of how much methane is leaking from oil and gas operations in different regions. So I think the oil and gas methane partnership 2.0 uh, framework is a good framework for, you know, getting to a point where we will have a better uh, certainty of what are methane emissions in different parts of the world and different uh, companies. And that hopefully, I mean, perhaps one day could be used for these kinds of measures. That said, I mean, in the meantime, I think there's a lot to be done with trade partners. Uh, right now, I mean, we, we released some analysis in the this year's World Energy Outlook that you could get almost as much gas as it, as it was importing from uh, Nord Stream 2 from its trade partners if they were to really um, deploy all the abatement technologies to reduce flaring and methane emissions in their uh, national oil and gas industries. So these are companies, uh, th these are countries like Algeria, like Egypt, um, also like the US, which currently have a lot of methane emissions and perhaps uh, if we engage in the right conversation in the right way and and especially for developing economies provide institutional and technical support they would be able to deliver uh, these gas volumes to the eu and improve energy security often through trade routes that are already existent so for example uh, algeria has already a pipeline with spare capacity to the eu which could uh, if there was you know further action on methane there deliver uh, volumes to the european union um, Mihai, I'm going to put this next question from the audience to you. It's from Leonard. Seeing the possible profitability of preventing venting, that was a tongue twister, um, why do suppliers seemingly not care about it? It looks like relatively low-hanging fruit. So you know, this, this would be an obvious question anyone looking at this would say. If this is as obvious and low-cost as we're saying, why aren't they doing it? Well, I can talk for Romania. Um which is and and for its uh, for the companies that are operating in Romania, um, they have very little incentive, for example, to um, um, invest in assets that are going to be closing down in the next few years. So, uh, for example, Petrom, the main company in Romania, uh, has a, a program where it will close down its oil uh, and 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 gas wells, half of its oil and gas wells by 2024. So there's very low incentive for the company to um, invest in, I don't know, Eldar program or monitoring program um, uh, to um, uh, address those, uh, those leaks. And again, with those wells, uh, a part of the adjacent infrastructure will also be um, divested from so this is, I, I think this is also very important. Uh, what is also very important is the um, incentives that are provided at uh, national level in terms of, uh, for example, if um, there's a windfall tax on, uh, on energy producers right now, including oil and gas, uh, but it does not, um, uh, that windfall tax does, does not include sort of, a, a, um, um, you know, like a tax uh, reduction for investments that have been made in upgrading the infrastructure. So I think this is also, and since we're talking about incentives, they, they sort of need to be there for oil and gas companies to be able to uh, um, make the investments. And even for recouping 
the methane that they can use. Uh, right now, for example, again, Petrom has a, a program where it uh, uh, recovers some of its uh, methane emissions from, uh, from some of its facilities and has invested in small uh, power plants that can power their wells. So, you know, um, I, I think uh, also if, if they were part of these larger international mechanisms, these oil companies would also have more know-how and would, you know, would, would, would go for these long-hanging fruits. Um, I have a next question here, which is very interesting. I don't know if we have the answer to it. Um, it's from Diana Powers. Has the amount of methane been estimated from the underwater Nord Stream pipeline explosion and later from emissions closer to Russia? I think I had heard at some point that because it was underwater, maybe it was less damaging. Alessia, do you know this? Well, I'm sure some of my colleagues could actually answer that better than I do. But it is actually difficult to know how much methane was actually emitted into the atmosphere. First, because we don't know how much from the pipeline actually leaked, but also how much made it into the atmosphere, because that would depend on the temperature of the water, of the microbial situation in this water. So there is a lot of factors that would explain the actual amount of methane that arrived in the atmosphere. What we know is that it's very likely one of the largest single events of methane emission in the atmosphere. However, we do need to keep in mind that that single event is what is emitted almost continually every day on methane across all the leagues on the world. So it is definitely a very impressive and very problematic emission accident that happened, incident maybe, and that should not overshadow otherwise the fact that these kind of leaks happen all the time, just in less spectacular way mm. across our whole network. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Tomas, at the IEA, do you have any uh, estimation or idea about this? We ourselves have not uh, set up, uh, put together an estimate for this, but we have been seeing from uh, people working with satellites that it was possible to estimate emissions. I believe it was something around uh, 80,000 tons of methane being released. So it is really a major event. Normally, it is hard to detect methane emissions on water because uh, of how satellites uh, read the light signal. But uh, when you have such major events, such big leaks, it, it becomes possible. That is, a, that is a huge amount, no matter what, for sure. Uh, but it's also sobering to know that that is roughly equal to the amount that we're emitting every day. Well, uh, thank you to the panelists for some really interesting uh, insight into domestic emissions. Uh, but a round of applause for our panelists. So we're now going to move on to the second panel, which is on methane emissions from imported oil and gas. So while we transition to that panel, have another look at the video explaining methane emissions. Did you know that the fastest way to slow global warming is to reduce emissions from the gas methane? Methane is an invisible, odorless greenhouse gas, but it's powerful. And according to the IPCC, it's responsible for about 0.5 degrees of the global warming we've experienced to date. Methane traps 84 times more heat than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years that it's released into the air. And the amount of it in our atmosphere has been surging for the last 15 years. The faster the planet's temperatures rise, the more likely and the sooner we will see irreversible damage to our environment. So where does all this methane come from? 
60% of the methane in our atmosphere comes from human activity, and the rest comes from natural sources like wetlands and permafrost melting. Methane from natural sources will keep rising while the planet heats up. But methane from human sources is preventable with the right public policies in place. Most methane pollution caused by human activity comes from fossil fuels, agriculture, and waste. 35% of methane comes from oil, gas, and coal. 32% of methane comes from animals raised for meat and dairy. 19% comes from waste, such as landfills and sewage. Another 8% comes from rice cultivation, and the rest comes from biomass burning, biogas production, and industry. A growing number of global leaders agree that cutting methane pollution is the fastest way to slow global warming. Fortunately, we have low-cost solutions to reduce methane emissions quickly in the next decade. More than 115 countries have signed on to the Global Methane Pledge, which aims to reduce global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And scientists say we can go even further to prevent a staggering 0.3 degrees of warming by 2040. The number might sound small, but the impact could be huge by preventing water shortages for millions, loss of food crops, increase in droughts, and much more. We cannot keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius without deep cuts to both methane and CO2. It is critical that policymakers around the world move quickly and aggressively to cut methane emissions now. Without immediate action, we won't meet the climate goals to reduce this powerful greenhouse gas and slow the rate of warming on our planet. Okay, welcome back. So we've now, we're now transitioning over to panel two, which is on international uh, methane emissions, particularly from uh, imported oil and gas into the EU. Let me introduce to you our second round of panelists. So we have Christian Lelong, Director of Climate Solutions at the Energy and Environmental Geoanalytics Company Kairos. We have Flavia Solazzo, Senior Director for EU Energy Transition at the NGO, the Environmental Defense Fund. And we have Andres Pibogs, Chair of, Implementa of the Implementation Committee of the International Methane Emissions Observatory of the United Nations Environment Program. Thank you all for joining us uh, today. Christian, I'd like to start with a question for you. Um, when we're looking at the methane emissions from imported oil and gas, what would you say is the best way for the EU to curtail those emissions? I mean, I will start by saying that, you know, Europe has invested a lot of resources in having, you know, world-class tools to detect uh, methane emissions. So starting with satellites, you know, Sentinel-5P, Sentinel-2, and now the next generation of satellites like Prisma and Nmap. Um, Europe has also invested a lot in you know, all the analytics to, 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 uh, to analyze all these new sources of, of data. Um, so for uh, you know, stopping or reducing imported emissions, I think there's you know, several angles. One is the, 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 you know, engaging directly with trade partners. We see a lot of emissions, for example, in Nigerian gas fields. We see emissions, of course, in the US, in Central Asia. So the EU can work with those countries um, um, in a sort of partnership and put in place uh, plans to, to reduce those emissions, whether it's from flaring or, um, or, or leaks or whatnot. Um, I think the transparency angle is essential. If you only start using all these tools that I described to 
um, you know, to publish the imported emissions, whether you're bringing LNG from the Gulf of Mexico or pipeline gas from the Middle East or metallurgical coal from Australian coal mines, if that information is public and we can do that with current tools, then the market will start to respond. You know, investors, uh, consumers will start to, to, to draw um, and change their behavior. And lastly, you know, the previous uh, panel talked about, um, you know, regulating methane at the border. You know, whether that's um, going to happen now or a little bit later, uh, we'll see. But we can say that putting a price on methane in the U.S. is already having a visible impact. Um, and we start to see already, you know, a reduction in the methane intensity of oil and gas production in some parts of the U.S. So I think all these tools uh, are available, you know, the transparency, working with trade partners, and market mechanisms. You know, we'll come back to that U.S. approach and how it might contrast with the EU approach a bit later. It's not just the pronunciation of methane that change, <laughs> differs between uh, Europe and the U.S., but also the approach currently. Uh, Flavia, let's turn to you next. Um, what are you expecting from the EU approach, and what are you hoping for from the EU approach? Yeah, well... I guess um, what we understand from, uh, from, from the proposal as it is now being negotiated is that there are information requirements um, set for, for imports and, and we see them and, and they are a first step into understanding what the footprint of the supplies that are entering into the EU are. And, and, and um, um, together with IMEO, the International Methane Emissions Observatory, the EU will then um, develop a, a methane supply index. Um, by 2025, at the latest, the, the, the Commission will, um, will um, ana analyze this data and um, propose how to, strengthen those, uh, how to strengthen those requirements. What will happen at that point is that we actually don't know. We don't know which policy instruments will, will be used. So I think... That there, there are different options that, 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 could be, that could be feasible, and one is indeed um, to have a performance standard, as, 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 as we've mentioned, and there is one that is being used now in the, in, in the US, um, and, 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 and putting a tax or, or a price on, on, higher, um, on higher emissions. And another another point that I think is quite is quite relevant is yes we have um, we, we will have requirements in the EU so we, we have uh, requirements for monitoring reporting and verification we have we have them for leak detection and repair we we will have them for uh, venting and flaring um, we need to somehow make sure that the gas supplies that come into the EU um, also also meet those standards and. And, and this is done in, in, in other commodities. It's done already for timber. It's done for agricultural products. It's done for cars, for chemicals. So, so I guess this is another, another option that, that then will be on the table. Andres, we heard at the beginning about data. About so We saw those images of the, the gas being detected by the infrared cameras. And we know that accurate data about methane has been hard to come by, and that's been one of the problems in regulating it. Um, how much data do we have on methane emissions right now? Is it enough to regulate? How much do we need to have a real true understanding of these emissions? Well, uh, 
basically we have data, we have estimations, we have uh, uh, factors, emission factors, we have also inventories, so we have data and we can't claim that there is no data that prevent action. But I think improving data should create an uh, action to mitigate the uh, methane emissions, especially when in high price environment. You don't see that market takes it over, then you need to regulate. It's market failure you have in place. And if you start to regulate, you need very precise data, so based on measurement. So I think that's the first pillar that uh, definitely need to develop. The second pillar is there are many companies involved. This OGMP 2.0 by mass already today represents uh, one third of producers. Uh, there are also pipeline companies, LNG companies, and there is also uh, storage operators. Not huge amount of them, 10, 15%, but still it creates a basis for methodology, but it also makes data for industry to make action. They are accountable also for their shareholders. And that, I think, is another pillar. And third pillar is definitely new technologies that are being developed, uh, particularly satellites, and all these images that we talked about, methane alert and response system, it sounds very dramatic, but actually it is also data, because you scope, you see plume of methane emissions, you measure what is, what is the size, uh, perhaps it's super emitter, you localize it, and then you take an action really to deal with this. So in this way, data creates a new environment. And IMEO tries really to push the boundaries with OGMP 2.0, with Mars, but also with training of officials, with trying to get more broader basis. Because what I have been in methane, I would say, human landscape for some while, and there is a limited number of people that are in it. So if it's regulated, we need more people with good knowledges, with knowledges on data, how you aggregate data, etc. So uh, IMEO definitely plays a key role, and actually two years uh, since its creation, it has, has uh, advanced quite well on this data. So we know that we have a different menu of approaches when it comes to dealing with methane. We have different menu of technological approaches, technological solutions. We have a different menu of policy solutions, policy approaches. Christian, as we look at that menu of possibilities, what, in your estimation, is the smartest way to go? Does it differ based on geography? Is maybe something suited for one part of the world, not suited for another part of the world? What's your recommendation in terms of approaches? Yes, I'm, I think we can start to be a bit more prescriptive now because we now have about three years worth of satellite data and we see clearly differences between regions. Um, so the ones that, um, that you know, would be high on my list would be um, you know, gas pipelines. Europe has lots of gas pipelines. And when we look at super emitters, the map in Europe is all dark, meaning there's barely anything to see. And then we see the gas transport network in, um, in Russia, in the US and Canada and other countries, and we see these super emitters coming time and again. And this is down to how they operate those pipelines. When they do maintenance, they open valves, they flush 20 kilometers of pipeline. In Europe, that is not done because that's not the regulation. So that's a really easy one. Um, 
Another one is, you know, in coal mining, you know, Europe still imports meteorological coal for steel, and will continue to do so for a while. Um, the mining industry knows how to drain methane from coal mines um, before the coal is exposed. They do it for safety reasons, so it would be great if, um, you know, they did it for environmental reasons as well. Um, and then, um, you know, venting and flaring are twin problems that are well known. Uh, we still see a lot of flaring activity in the world. Where there is flaring, there is usually venting. And again, it would be great to nip those two at the same time. So those would be three at the, high, at the top of my list. Flavia, what do you think is the best approach, in particular for Europe? Well, I would say um, that there, was, there, there is no silver bullet, no? Uh, there, is, there is an integration of approaches also, as, as, as Christian was mentioning. And, and, and I think at, at the beginning, um, we need a robust MRV, so monitoring, reporting, and verification. Um, and, and, and we can do that uh, in, in different ways. So we have the satellite, the satellite part, and, and the airborne part, where we can see the, the concentration. We can see we, we can see where where the, the, the emissions are located, and, and then we have the on-site part, where where we can then uh, go into into the mitigation actions and uh, detect the leaks and, and and repair them. So so I guess there is this part, and then and then the other part is indeed um, the economic approaches and and, and and to see okay. This is what we have. This is what we can do. What we can do about it, and um, and and as I was mentioning, there are, there are different parts. Uh, you can go through contracts. You can go through through joint purchase agreements. You can go through uh, through performance standards, um, for example. I just the data shows us, uh, as we've seen, that there's there's differences between geographies in terms of how methane emissions come, uh, and then who who the big players are. Uh, as you were putting it, uh, in terms of methane emitters. Um, so what do you think is the best approach for Europe, given Europe's particular situation? No, I think Europe is, uh, clearly should play an important role on importing oil and gas and uh, transparency and economic incentives uh, in importing cleaner or more environmentally more <laughs> friendly oil and gas and giving incentives to producers really to save emissions because then they also could sell better to the Europe. I think that is very specific to Europe. It's not only Europe. I would mention also Japan could do the same, uh, the same also for China. So there are a couple of very big players in the market that definitely could influence. And for this reason, EU legislation without addressing imports would be just a not very serious approach to the issue because in this way we would save peanuts and at the same time we would have missed major opportunity in influencing global thinking, global approach and with global meet and pledge it is even, uh, yeah, it must be done. It just must be done if there is no option to go out of it. In terms of imports, we heard earlier from Thomas's presentation we could see on the chart that you know Europe's methane footprint goes way beyond its borders because of the imports. Because um, I mean, we even Thomas said that the EU is striking deals on fossil fuel imports with countries that have not signed uh, the pledge, the Global uh, Methane Emissions Pledge. Um, Christian, does some does a really radical rethink here of trade policy need to happen? If you know you're having the EU sign this pledge, 
in Glasgow and then going on and making deals with countries that aren't in it. Uh, there seems to be a disconnect there, no? Yes, I mean, to, to go back to, to the data that Tona showed, uh, 10 million tons of imported methane emissions, you know, times 80, which is the strength of methane, that's the carbon footprint of the German economy. So if we could cut that in half, which, you know, I guess most people would agree is, is feasible, um, um, that, that's, that's huge. And you have to work with countries that have signed the pledge as well as those that haven't. Um, and again, I think now that IMEO is, is becoming operational, we can all have this common data set to agree on, yes, self-reported numbers, again, as Thomas showed, are, have underreported true emissions in the fossil fuel uh, supply chain by probably an order of magnitude. Um, so let's agree on the data and start measuring how these, um, the, the methane content of the fossil fuels we import is going down in a verifiable manner. Xavier, do you, do you also think that the EU should be working with countries that haven't signed the pledge, or would you like to see a trade policy that says, nope, no, no pledge, <laughs> no imports? Well, I mean, we are at uh, more than 150 now. And, and I think one of the, one of the, one of the big outcomes of, of, of COP27 in terms of, uh, in terms of methane emissions was the joint declaration between importers and exporters, even, even though it's, it's, it's an announcement. But, but I think, I think it is something that, that, that can start making, making the difference. And, and, and the other point I would like to mention is, is something that was mentioned earlier. So, so the Repower EU and the initiative uh, You Collect, We Buy that was mentioned there, but then didn't, didn't really um, find traction because this is something that, that needs, it needs, it needs input. It, 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 needs, it needs money to be, to be put into the infrastructure that is already existing to, to, to make sure that the gas that, that, that is already extracted from the soil is then is then also used and not and not just uh, wasted in in the atmosphere and and I think I think there are different ways of of, of tackling it. Yes, uh, sure, countries that have signed the global methane pledge, but then also countries that uh, that agree to 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 these kind of uh, to these kind of things. And I think this is this is a broader picture in in terms of of, of the transition that, that that we have to 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 put yeah that that we have to 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 address. One more question for you guys before I go to the audience question. So again, put in your questions on Slido. Uh, they'll pop up here, and I can ask them to the panelists. Uh, but I want to compare and contrast with the U.S. approach. So Andres, uh, you first. This, this approach we were talking about before with the, the price, um, we see, I think, in particular when we're talking about imports, that that could be quite interesting. What do you think? Is it, who's got the right approach here, the U.S. with the price or the EU with Maybe not price. No, I think U.S. is doing right. Uh, no question about it. Politically, could we do more? I doubt. Yeah, so I think in the regulations proposed the lowest common denominator that could go through not trying to provoke too much opposition to the whole regulation. So definitely it's right. And indirectly, we will be in this debate because European Parliament has voted in position on CBAM to include hydrogen and ammonia. If you look on these two commodities, they are related to the natural gas. So that means that methane is already in. So, and CBAM, okay, they're testing phase, because they need also to adopt. Yeah, but there is already this direction. I don't know what Parliament's arguments have been this, but they voted in a huge majority for this. And they, I think, are aware that it involves also methane uh, costs in a way because you need to transfer them, you need to cause 
calculation how much does it would influence imported hydrogen based on the natural gas and the same also with, uh, uh, with uh, ammonia. So there is already opening for the discussion on peace. So it's possible that we get a price on methane by stealth? Yeah, we, we get through the CBAM. If it is involved, in the, you can't say, well, uh, this is only CO2 emissions. You, you need to take all greenhouse gas emissions, so methane is in. I don't know how much Parliament was aware when they voted, but I mm -hmm. assume they have been aware, because otherwise they have not been voted it in. So that is in. Um, councils should agree or disagree, but it would be very difficult to disagree, particularly for ammonia. But if you agree for ammonia, then you can't not agree for hydrogen. So you are in. Well, nobody tell the MEPs <laughs> they figured this well, out. Well, they are clever enough. <laughs> Christian. Um, in terms of contrasting the U.S. approach to the U.S. approach, what do you think, what's, what's going to be the story there as we go ahead? I mean, what we've seen with uh, the IRA in the U.S. is that it has sharpened a lot of people's minds. Um, and to take an example that, you know, your colleagues at EDF highlighted um, some time ago, there was this gas compressor station in Texas. And it was malfunctioning, and, you know, the, your colleagues saw it, we saw it as well. We talked about it. And, you know, nothing much happened. Now with IRA, with a $900 a ton price on methane, we use the same example and say, this facility, over one week, it would have incurred $2 million in penalties. And the leak was actually longer than that, so you're talking tens of millions in potential penalties. That sharpens, you know, people's minds, whether it's the company concerned or their shareholders. Um, so I think it's, it's that really nice thing about, um, you know, bringing... The, the topic of mitigation to dollars and cents, um, and that for me has been the, the greatest thing about the IRA. Clavia, what do you think in terms of these IRA provisions on methane? How are they going to affect the debate here in Europe? Well, I, I completely agree with, uh, <laughs> with, with the two of them, and, and I also think um, it's what, what, what is agreed in, uh, in, the, in the US and, and what, is, what is going to be implemented there um, is based is based on actual numbers that the industry has already agreed to through uh, the oil and gas climate initiative and, and and some of the things we are negotiating in the EU are are based on on what the industry has already agreed on the oil and gas uh, methane partnership and and so I guess I guess it's a, again it's a it's a kind of a no brainer because because it's things that the industry can already do um, so. So I guess it, it needs to affect <laughs> what we do here as well. <laughs> well, let me take a question from the audience. It's also related to the US. Um, Christian, I'll put it to you. The question is from Sophie Marandon from FIPRA. Advanced solutions exist to monitor methane emissions continuously at low costs. We're seeing that the U.S. is working on an EPA regulation that would encourage continuous monitoring and repair at oil and gas facilities. Could you see this happening in the EU? Um, yeah, there's no reason why not. And again, what the U.S. is doing is interesting because it is a bit of a, of a laboratory. Um, one of my favorite clauses in the IRA is what is called the empirical clause. The EPA is saying, we know the way we've measured methane in the past is not accurate. We know the companies are clearly underreporting. We need to do better. We know there's new technologies out there, but we just haven't figured out exactly what's the ideal monitoring system of the future. They know that it needs to 
include more and more observations. Um, and so that will include, um, you know, around-the-clock monitoring from local ground sensors. It will include airplanes. It will include drones. Um, and it will include different types of satellites. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the U.S. has given itself a bit of a, a year, year and a half, to flesh out what they meant by empirical data to, to, to implement the IRA. Flavio, what do you think about this idea of continuous monitoring? Well, again, I have to agree in the, in the sense that it's, uh, it's, it's something that, 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 that is indeed feasible. And, and, and the, point, the point is also that the sooner, the sooner we, we, we find the leaks, the, 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 faster, the faster we address it. And, and, and uh, yeah, so I think there is now nothing uh, that speaks against, if, if, we are, if we are honest. I just would you agree? Well, it would be difficult to disagree, but it is always that we need to think how technology evolves because technology evolved enormously. Costs have dropped down, and broader application definitely perhaps will take this argument that costs increases immensely because well, technologies are there, and that are these are not the most expensive technologies. So it's really can be applied, and it's not for huge expense to consumers because if these technologies are addressed broadly, then is there more gas uh, is being saved. That means that we have more supply to the market and the prices for cons consumers drop. So there is a, executive vice president Timmers elegantly spoke that sometimes in the argumentation there is a tendency to hide because behind the smallest part of consumers or producers uh, to make that it is impossible to make, and the biggest ones are behind it. Just, uh, well, why they don't do this? Because they just, well, they don't, don't like it. That's as simple as that. So there is no actually reason. So definitely this continuous monitoring makes sense, and it's not too expensive if you look at the costs in the lifetime. Well, the next question comes from Megan Richards. Uh, so this is about looking at the difference in methane emissions uh, if you're comparing pipeline gas to LNG gas shipped across the ocean. Um, there are some studies indicating that Russian pipeline gas has two to three times the greenhouse gas emissions of shipped LNG from the US. Is this possible given the relatively small amounts of gas sent per ship versus piped gas? Is there a reliable measure that compares all GHG emissions per BCM of LNG versus piped gas? Christian, what, what, what is the, the difference in terms of uh, methane emissions from imports when you're looking at LNG versus pipeline gas? I mean, I think the biggest difference is the way the gas was produced in the first place. Um, and, um, and that's going to account for the bulk of, of the methane emissions from the consumer perspective. You know, LNG tankers may leak a tiny bit, but, um, you know, I think that's, you know, very small and we cannot measure it anyway. Um, pipelines, again, they can be more or less wasteful uh, depending on how they do maintenance and where we see super emitters. Um, to the question of was Russian gas dirtier than LNG or not, um, it depends on which LNG provider you're comparing it to. So I would say not necessarily. Um, um, Norwegian LNG, yes, I'm sure much cleaner than Russian gas. Um, LNG from some other countries, um, probably dirtier than, than Russian pipeline gas. 
So it's really not about the, the method of shipping the gas, it's about where that gas was coming from and how yes. it was, uh, came out of the earth. Um, is there, are this, if we're comparing, I mean, on that same subject, if we're looking at, uh, let's say, shale gas from the US versus Russian gas coming from uh, Siberia versus Norwegian gas, um, do we have a, a good comparative analysis of the methane emissions uh, if you're looking at imports to Europe that can reliably let policymakers know this is better, that's better? Uh, Flavia? Well, well, I guess this goes back to the fact that um, monitoring, reporting, and verification is, is key in <laughs> all over. Um, and, and, and I think this, this doesn't mean that we have to, that we have to stop uh, until we have uh, relevant data or reliable data, but, but I think, I think we, we need to make sure that, that whatever, whatever imports we, we, um, we, we bring into the EU have, um, have the lowest methane emissions as, uh, as possible. And, and we don't want to risk that, um, we don't want to risk that, that we import from somewhere where we don't, uh, we don't meet the requirements that we have here, but also where we uh, risk to jeopardize the, the, the targets that, that we've set. Andres, do you think we can make yeah. reliable comparisons? I think we, we need to make. A commission has this ambition to create a meat and supply index. And IMEO, well, partially was bounded to support this process, really, to have a better measure, measurement and calculation methods and to provide this. How it should be used, I am not saying that it will be used for commercial operation because at the end of the day, there is declaration about your greenhouse gas emissions and if there will be fee, it will be on individual declaration base. But for transparency, it makes a huge difference if you can say meat and supply index from US is this, meat and supply index from Algeria is different because it influences domestic producer. It definitely influences. You, you don't want to be in the situation where you are compared with uh, your peers, and that definitely makes a lot of difference. And if I can just add to that. So with satellite data, we look at methane at, in two levels. Um, the first level is what we call super emitters. So these are really big plumes of, of methane that stand out against the background, and they usually are tied to a specific facility that was venting or, or leaking. Um, and we can compare different countries to see how many of these super emitters do we see in the upstream sector, in the production of oil and gas, and keeping in mind the amount of fossil fuels they are producing. But there's another use of satellite data. Um, the technical term is uh, inversion models. So here we're looking at the cloud of methane across an entire oil and gas field or a coal basin, average over the month, average over the year, and that's meant to reflect all the sources of methane, big or small, uh, across that entire region. And so that really gives you a good sense of the actual you know, kilograms of, of methane emitted per barrel of oil uh, equivalent produced. And that's the, a great basis to, to compare different producers, uh, whether you're looking at you know, shale gas um, in the Permian Basin versus Algerian gas from, uh, from uh, Hassi Ahmed, from other basins around the world. And again, that I'm sure will be another of the inputs. Yeah, because Mars actually is being, that's the first for next year, it is really for 
point uh, point of sources of emissions so very much but generally later it would go in this direction so it will be we will have better data better satellites and we could be very sure what we are saying that these are verified data it's not something mm -hmm. that estimates it is measurement based so that is intention of the Mars well, before we wrap up, I want to get a quick concluding thought from each of you uh, in terms of what you, we, you know, the legislators in the parliament and the council are going to be considering this proposal in the coming months. What is the number one thing you would want to tell them to make sure that they understand as they're considering this in the next months? What do you think is most important, particularly what's maybe not understood? Christian? So my key message would be, you know, the, the data and the technologies to start reducing emissions significantly are already available today. Um, and the technology, I think, is always going to have about three years ahead of policy. Because with the data we have, which is not complete, but it already highlights the biggest uh, emitters, let's get rid of those. It will take a couple of years. By that time, we'll have the next generation of, uh, of satellites and sensors and algorithms, and we'll be able to see you know, the next batch of sources to eliminate, and so on and so forth. So it's going to be an iterative process, but bottom line, we have enough data to, to really take a big step towards the 30% reduction of the methane pledge. Flavia? Yeah, I, I can only second that. And, um, and, and and, and, and I would like to, to, to add that, yes, so we, we have the technology, we, we have sufficient data, um, and what, what I think is, is important is that we, we make sure that we don't favor um, the, the, the difficulties that are uh, put on the table by, by some of the, of, the, of the companies in the EU at the moment which can be overcome by, by, by the technology that is there um, at the expenses of the, the future, the future um, energy security and at the expenses of the, of the climate. And Andres? Well, uh, it's always risky to, to make any advice to legislators, <laughs> but I believe in case of doubt, uh, ask experts. We have excellent experts yes. for satellites. We have excellent experts, Thomas demonstrator on the ground measurements. We have excellent experts, and they will say why exactly this provision is needed. So trust uh, the text, uh, but trust also the experts. We have excellent expertise, and it's not prejudged expertise. It's really objective on the facts. Uh, so that I would advise them in this critical phase to quickly find agreement on the basis of science. It's not so much just regulation in uh, for administrative purposes, but it's also based on scientific facts. Well, I want to thank the panelists very much for some really interesting insights. I'll a round of applause for them. And you guys can stick around here for just a moment. We're next going to be getting our wrapping up remarks. I think so far we've really heard that you know the, the data is there enough to legislate. Um, the policy expertise is there. The question is whether there's the will to move. I think one particular thing that we've figured out so far is that the U.S. in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the first, effectively, the first climate bill the U.S. has ever passed, has gone pretty far here and has gone uh, quite a bit further than the EU is even intending to go with its proposal. That doesn't happen every day. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. 
when the legislators in the parliament and the council look at this, and they're looking at uh, what's happening over in the US perhaps for inspiration. It's not something we're used to seeing for climate legislation that will make for an interesting dynamic. But I'd next like to pass over the floor for some concluding remarks to Malcolm McDowell. Uh, now, Malcolm is from the European Commission's Energy Department, uh, is in charge of the Commission's methane strategy, has been listening to everything we've had to say here. We're going to get some responses uh, from him. So, Malcolm, I turn the floor over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to begin by thanking Clean Air Task Force for organizing this. Um, and they were nice enough also, uh, not only to uh, invite me, but to allow me to take the last spot. Now I'm reflecting back on this and thinking, note to self, don't do that again. You're just going to be frustrated for two hours. You'll want to react to everything you're hearing and not get the chance until the end. And I'll no doubt forget everything that I wanted to say, but I'll do my best to... Uh, to come back on, on some of those major major points. I also want to thank Lina Task Force because it's taken this proposal very seriously and is very engaged. Uh, and, uh, and we appreciate that because uh, what is important in this particular policy proposal um, is to achieve, I think, the kind of ambition that only uh, comprehensive involvement from the different stakeholders will deliver. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about why it's so important in a moment. But I want to begin with emphasizing one thing that uh, some of the presentations today hinted at, but I wish there would have been a little bit more drama around it to really emphasize the situation that we're in right now with regards to methane emissions, uh, whether it's in the energy sector indeed or, 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 or elsewhere. We just don't have a clue how much anthropogenic methane emissions are, be, are being emitted. We don't know the sources of that methane emissions, the reasons for it, and we have sure as hell no idea of the magnitude. All those numbers you saw are misleading because most of those numbers, especially as Professor Rockman said, based, those based on the national inventories are based on estimations, not direct measurements. In fact, we have reason to believe the oil and gas industry and the coal industry themselves don't know. Some of them have signed up some, some voluntary agreements uh, recently to make good on their methane emissions. I think a lot of it is paying lip service to the fact that uh, in the minds of, of legislators, methane emissions has become important. Whether they're really uh, having a grip on the methane emissions they're responsible for is another thing. And we're not completely sure about that. But certainly, uh, we want to try to uh, impose on them uh, the kind of obligations that will, in, that, that will ensure that they soon have uh, knowledge of, of their methane emission problem. And so the first thing that we thought we needed to start with, but not the only thing, uh, is to uh, impose a high standard uh, of measurement uh, and reporting and, and verification, which is not actually uh, completely taken from thin air, because for oil and gas it's true that there is a good voluntary initiative, the Oil and Gas Methane Partnership, and uh, what we find, found appealing about it is that it's striving towards uh, ensuring for all the kind of methane emission sources for which it's possible to do to deliver direct measurements. And also to have the source level measurements um, uh, verified against uh, site level measurements. Uh, and indeed, that's exactly what we've uh, put into, uh, into our legislation. 
we also recognize that uh, um, even though you don't have a good uh, uh, understanding of the methane emissions problem, you can already come up with abatement measures. Many of you have alluded to the fact that some of these in the energy sector in particular are cost-effective. Indeed, it's true. Uh, and there are well-recognized, in the oil and gas sector, well-recognized means of, of uh, first of all, uh, have, you know, growing an understanding on the kind of uh, fugitive, em fugitive emissions that you have and, and, and repairing them. And also there are means of, of restricting uh, venting and flaring to ensure uh, that you're emitting as little as possible. To come back, and I'm doing it now already because I'm not even looking at my notes, come back again on numbers. Um, I wanted to say uh, something about some of the methane intensity numbers that you're talking about, uh, that you talked about, Professor Rookmans. I think uh, the US, you, you mentioned some 3 or 4% methane intensity on the basis of estimates. I heard from uh, experts in the field that in the US it could be as high as 9% for fossil gas, in fact, especially in the Permian Basin. And the IEA didn't say it tonight, but they made a calculation that actually beyond 4% of methane losses, you're talking about uh, a form of energy that's worse than coal. Um, so th this is what we're talking about with regards to fossil gas specifically. So imagine if the industry isn't getting it right in terms of ensuring ambition in this regulation, how will they convince you? You spoke on this about uh, ammonia and hydrogen, uh, some of which is made from natural gas. And the industry is telling us, that same industry that doesn't know uh, about its methane emissions problem is telling us that it can produce uh, low greenhouse gas intensity uh, hydrogen, for instance. Well, I would say that if we don't have an ambitious regulation through which they will demonstrate in a few years that they have controlled their methane emissions, they will never be able to produce that low greenhouse gas intensity hydrogen. And I doubt very much that they can today. Part of the problem is also that there is no certification scheme um, or any authority right now in the world that could attest to the methane intensity of, uh, uh, of those operators. I have to complain a little bit about what I've been hearing tonight because I wish we would have focused a little bit more on the abatement measures that we put on the table. It's all good and well to reflect on what the US has done, but it's not what we put on the table. And I'll explain to you why it's not even a good idea as far as I'm concerned. What we put on the table and that's being discussed, that is being discussed right now, has been discussed since the beginning of the year in the Council, are very detailed prescriptive measures on LDAR and restrictions on, on venting and flaring. These are the things I would have liked to, to have heard views uh, pronounced on a bit more. I mean, thinking about the whole idea behind the tax, as per the ETS, by the way, is that you're willing to accept uh, emissions of greenhouse gases being legally uh, emitted into the atmosphere in return for a certain amount of money to do so. This is not the approach we want to take with this regulation. We want to restrict as much as possible methane emissions in the atmosphere. And then what about a level of a tax? The US um, tax begins at $900 uh, per ton. Uh, UNEP last year calculated that the cost on society of methane being emitted rather than abated is 4,300 US dollars. Are we getting it right? Is the US getting it right? Um, 
What about spending that money instead of spending it with the, for the opportunity to emit? What about spending that money, a lot less of it, towards actually abating methane emissions, knowing that most of them pay for themselves? And is it the right approach? I wonder. Not to mention the fact that the, you have to talk about it in the context of the EU. Tax means unanimity. Uh, it's a non-starter. Um, so all these things I wanted to say about that. Then I, I will finish by talking a little bit about what, we've, what you've said about how, how we should uh, regulate importers. No one actually talked about what's inside that proposal um, with regards to importers. What we're proposing to do, which we think is this, not only the simplest way to do it, but also uh, in many respects uh, a very effective way, the man from Kairos actually highlighted it, is to put the spotlight on what is being done and what is not being done with regards to methane emissions regulations, but also actions from companies around the world, and put that in a, in a database where everyone will have free and, and publicly available access to it. Um, it might even start with just highlighting which of the member states that have signed up to the Paris Agreement are actually delivering those commitments. It'll talk about whether, if they're delivering inventories, whether they're actually even delivering it at the highest possible level, which is itself not that ambitious because it's still emission factors and not direct measurements. It could highlight whether the regulations that have been put in place are leading to changes that are verifiable changes, independently verifiable changes in terms of methane emissions. It could put a lot of information uh, on all the different exporters to, to the EU of uh, fossil gas, uh, of oil or coal. And on that basis, we've allowed ourselves also uh, to review um, what we managed to get with all these, this requirement, which will be a requirement on importers to gather all this information. Um, and then in 2025, we can review and consider um, what else we could do. But part of the proposal, which is, uh, which, or rather, which is outside of the proposal, that, but that needs to take into, be taken into account, that can't be ignored, is all the efforts that we've been doing, the Commission, uh, together with the External Action Service to have things on the table like the Global Methane Pledge. We delivered that. We also d delivered the joint declaration with the EU, US, uh, Japan, uh, Canada and others, and that's no mean feat. Why? Because they, we, we got them in this joint declaration to sign up to the same kind of ambitious domestic measures uh, in their own domestic regulations. So what I'm telling you today is that the approach that we took is one that still believes in climate diplomacy, that it can deliver. And even then, um, if it doesn't deliver in a few years' time, we allow ourselves to review and decide on what we could be doing. But what we would be doing then, I very much doubt it, but we'll see. It, 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 very much doubt that it will be anything like a tax. I think now we've understood enough about methane emissions uh, to realize that this is not about allowing, providing permits to pollute. This is about really abating methane emissions to the fullest extent. And that, that will be my last word on that. Thanks, Malcolm. And finally, for our concluding remarks, I'd like to hand it back over to Jonathan Banks from the Clean Air Task Force to give us some reflections on what we've heard tonight. 
And Malcolm, you knew I wouldn't let you have the last word. <laughs> always, always be the last one at the podium. Um, I'm not going to take up, I think I was given 10 minutes for this. I'm not going to take up 10 minutes, don't worry, because I know I'm standing between you all and the wine that's out there. Um, I, I wanted to touch on, I've been, there was a lot that we have discussed uh, today, and I wanted to touch on a couple of things just to um, reflect. And unfortunately, a lot of them are from the back end of the, of the session here, uh, rather than from the front end. But I wanted to first, there, there was a question I think you asked, if all of this stuff is so profitable, why aren't companies doing this? And I think one of the things that we missed in, in that discussion is that um, cost curves are really great for identifying how much it costs to actually do a mitigation measure um, versus um, how much savings you get from conserving that gas and being able to sell that gas. They are not very good for saying why it's not happening. Um, the reason that it's not happening is, is, is quite varied from company to company, country to country, there are things that we refer to as barriers in the system. And there are barriers in the system that prevent companies from taking action on this. Um, barriers that are often overcome only through the regulatory process. I'll give you an example of one. Uh, within a company, you can have a, comp uh, a company that has a division within the company that's drilling wells. And you can have a division within the company that is supposed to mitigate methane emissions. Those two divisions in the company have to fight for the same amount of capital within the company. And they have to show a rate of return on, on investment. And the, the part of the company that drills the well has a higher rate of return than the part of the company that mitigates methane. They're always going to lose out to the guys that want to drill wells. That's just... That's just how companies work. They have to make the most profit from what uh, they have. You put regulations in place, the game changes completely because now the people in the methane division have the primary status and that changes everything. These, that's just one example of barriers. I can give you a list of a thousand barriers that vary from country to country around the world, but we have to find ways to start overcoming those barriers and the only thing that we have found that overcomes barriers is direct regulation. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the U.S. piece because I think there's a bit of a misconception of what the U.S. actually did. Um, the U.S. put in place a fee on methane emissions. That is correct. But it is not by itself. The fee is in place along with direct regulations. The fee was put into place in the U.S. for two very important reasons. One, to accelerate action. They recognize that we have a very cumbersome regulatory structure in the United States. It takes a long time for anything to move through it. They could put a fee in in place that would actually cause um, action by companies much more rapidly than the regulations that will be coming down the pipe later on. And the second reason is, back to our cumbersome uh, regulatory environment, the United States EPA, our regulatory body, doesn't have authority over offshore oil and gas and a number of other sections of the oil and gas system. The fee is also designed to expand the scope of our methane actions. And so it actually, um, as time goes on, you will see it targeting, it, it will be able to target the offshore sector, the LNG export terminals, things that EPA currently can't regulate. And so it's important to understand that this is a layered approach. It was not a unique, oh, we're just going to do the fee thing. It's a layered approach to expand the scope 
Um, and so when we're looking at examples for how this might work for, for Europe and things like that, it, it's an important piece to look at, but it's also important to understand the context with which um, the U.S. has been using this. The other, um, the other piece I wanted to um, just briefly mention was, um, and Malcolm referred to this a little bit as well, the, the issues around, um, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about data and the, and the importance of data, and data is, is, is critically important. Um, and, and we'll be seeing so much more improvement in what we can see both domestically within the EU as well as internationally from other countries. Um, you know, but it's Im important to understand that precise data is not necessary to do what we need to start doing. Um, and we're not going to get methane regulations perfect on the first try. Um, because data is not perfect. And we, but we can write regulations today and Malcolm, you've already done this, we can write regulations today that take on this question of data from a perspective of, look, we don't really need data to implement LDAR. We don't really need data to say, you know what, if you have a piece of equipment that's designed to leak methane, literally designed to leak methane, replace it with something that doesn't. That doesn't take data. That's just uh, that's just a standard you put in place. There are a number of different things throughout the system that we can put in place that do those kinds of things that require no data and will improve our data as we implement them. Um, the other thing um, to, to note on the, on the data piece, because uh, we were talking about the, um, uh, the LNG import pathways and things like that, um, you know, it is, um, you know, it's really difficult right now um, to say, you know, a country has an emission rate of X, you know, 5% or whatever. You can't do that. You look at the U.S., you wouldn't say the U.S. has a 9% emission rate. Um, you would say the Permian Basin has a 9% emission rate. But maybe what you really need to be doing is looking at the company level, because even within the Permian, you're going to see differences uh, by the companies. When we did an analysis uh, in the U.S., we found vast differences between emission rates from companies uh, and, uh, and their operations in certain basins versus other basins. So as we move to looking at like how to evaluate emissions coming into Europe, we need to be um, cognizant of the fact that we're going to need um, a much better way to understand how this looks going forward. What, what was done in the United States on, on the methane fee, again, not to address imported emissions, was they said, all right, Let's make an assumption about what you emit. If you don't agree with that assumption, then come to us with data and prove that we are wrong. And, um, and so that is, that's, that's a way that they've gotten around the, the data question that, uh, ca that can be something to be looked at uh, as we move forward here. Um, those, were, those are a couple of things I wanted to flag. Uh, I also um, just wanted to go back to... Um, uh, to something that um, Executive Vice President Timmermans uh, mentioned as well, um, that, you know, we're having this conversation about mostly oil and gas, and I think we've mentioned coal, like, maybe three times. Sorry, there was a couple of guys in the room here from uh, the coal side that wanted to talk coal. But, um, uh, you know, we also really, uh, as, uh, as uh, Executive Vice President Timmermans said, we also really need to start looking at 
how to mitigate methane emissions in the with the waste sector, the ag sector, um, and 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 then I'm really excited to hear some of the things that um, uh, that the vice president mentioned about um, exploring um, the the funding mechanisms as well as research and and other regulatory measures to begin to address methane uh, in the ag sector. And then of course we have two provisions coming up. Uh, next year uh, to look at waste from landfills as well as waste um, from uh, um, from the um, uh, from the whole waste cycle. So um, we have to start talking a lot more about that stuff, not just in Europe but um, in, in other parts of the world, because the the temperature um, benefit that we get from mitigating methane emissions, you know, the 0.3 degrees Celsius change that we can get through mitigating methane emissions doesn't come just from the oil and gas sector. We have to start addressing the other sectors as well. With that, I will no longer stand in the way of you and your glass of wine. Um, and I thank you all for joining us here tonight and um, wish you all a good night. And um, hopefully we can find a TV to turn uh, the matches on. So, <laughs> cheers. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, uh, I will extend my invitation as well uh, for the drinks. And just to let you know, if you're watching online or here in person, you can find the video of tonight's events on the Interactive webpage in the future. Thanks, and have a great evening.